teacher voice. And so, sorry, I, I didn't mean to bring the teacher voice into our relationship. And I was teaching, but, you know, 15 years of doing this, sometimes it happens that I can be talking to somebody and I can accidentally alliterate. I don't mean to do it all the time, but after 15 years, it just kind of happens. And so I do want to let you see sort of behind the, the curtain to what your bulletin used to look like before I, I had a you know bucket of cold water hit me. Um, this is what the sermon used to look like. Um, there we are. I had the commandments and our capital in God's capacity, see, with the C's, but it was the commandments and the quest for the eternal, our capital and the quandary of the earthly, and God's capacity and the question of our inertia. And I got done and I thought, that, that's really just incredibly unhelpful. But like halfway through, I just had to finish because it's just sort of this like weird preacher OCD thing that happens sometimes. Just so you know, if you have a bullet and you see, that's not where we're going. We're going to be talking about those topics. You can get rid of it. It's a little embarrassing. Thank you, Jace. But I did want to just let you guys know, you know, that's, that's what the sermon used to look like. You don't have to deal with all that alliteration. You don't have to deal with commandments and capital and capacity and quests and quandaries and questions and things like that. Instead, we're going to be talking today about three lies, three simple lies. And they are the lies that you confront anytime anyone thinks about how to answer the question that this young man, this rich young man from another gospel, this ruling rich young man, so he's sometimes called the rich young ruler, what actually he's asking. And he asks a question in a really interesting way. He says, what do I need to do in order to have eternal life? And it's an interesting way of thinking about it because when he wants to have this eternal life he uses the word not have but if you notice in verse 17 he says good teacher what must i do to inherit eternal life now there's a few things to unpack in that question before we dive in and frankly the entire sermon could really just unpack the nuances of those questions because you and I, uh, you know, 2,000 years removed from this, hear eternal life, and probably what comes to your mind is heaven, right? Thinking about how to live eternally in heaven, someplace where they eat Philadelphia cream cheese and you sprout angel's wings and you live on a cloud. Those are the kinds of things that happen because of all those Bugs Bunny, you know, carp, you know, and Disney things that just, it's the way we think about eternal life. And it's helpful maybe in the beginning to understand that's probably not the first century understanding of this word. It wasn't just what happens whenever your spirit leaves your body and your body decomposes and you go somewhere else and live there eternally. That's significant. And the way that eternity is spoken of in Scripture, I think we can say that eternal life encompasses that as well. But probably if we're thinking about this the way that the, this young man was coming, this man, as Mark calls him, remember he doesn't give us a lot of details, just a guy, we're going to find out he's wealthy, but he's just a guy. And as he's kneeling down and coming, he's asking a question primarily about life, probably less about eternity. He calls it eternal life because it's the kind of life that comes from the kingdom of God. Remember, Jesus has been talking in Mark about what the concepts of the kingdom are like. See, there, there was a C and a K, but still kind of, you know, the hard, the hard K thing. It's the alliteration. You just can't help it sometimes. What does it mean to be a part of the kingdom of God? Well, one thing we know is that life comes where the kingdom is extended to. So the very beginning, we have the Garden of Eden, the place of greatest life. Go all the way out to the end in Revelation. What do you have? You have a city, yes, but not just a static city, not a cold, not a concrete or even a, a jeweled and gold city. It's a living city with a river and a tree and fruit. There's, there's this sense from the beginning to the end of Scripture that when God reigns, his people thrive and live. That's part of what this guy's asking. 
Because as, as we heard from Mike and what he read, this guy's been obedient, but he realizes that obedience in itself isn't kind of all that God's kingdom offers. And he's wealthy, as we're going to find out as well. But it's not just that prosperity is enough. He realizes he has a lot, but he realizes that he's missing the key. And if God's going to reign forever, then the kind of life that God's kingdom brings will reign forever. So we just have to understand right out of the gate, this guy's not asking, what happens when I die? And that becomes clear in what's going to be kind of part B of Jesus' answer next week. See, if you look in your Bibles, you probably see a big paragraph, and you recognize that we're going to end verse 27 today, right kind of halfway through. So teaser, if you want the full answer Jesus gives, this is going to take two weeks, all right? Or I could just preach for a really long time today, and, you know, we'll just, you know, we're not going to do that. But I did also want Mike to read from Job because I think Job sets up a contrast for us of what we're going to see here in this. This guy's looking for more than obedience. He's looking for more than his possessions. And he's asking for life. And Jesus is saying, yeah, one thing's getting in the way. And the way his story plays out is actually the exact opposite of the way that Job's story plays out. In Job, we hear that everything was taken from him, and at the end of chapter 1, verse 21, we read, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The end of the day, you know when you've met somebody, whether they've got a lot, whether they don't have a lot. You know you've met somebody who speaks from a heart that kind of echoes what's inside Job's heart. Paul kind of spoke to it a little bit when he was describing his life, this itinerant preacher, a guy who sometimes would go to places and live off of others, sometimes go to cities and earn his own living, is potentially a pretty competent tradesman. But no matter whether he had a lot, whether he had a little, he said, I've kind of learned this secret, and it's being content with whether I have a lot or whether I have a little. Job had a lot, and in a heartbeat, he had nothing. And in that heartbeat final exam of sorts that, uh, that kind of was laid on his doorstep, not that he voluntarily asked for it, but when it arrived in the form of attacks and windstorms and great devastating loss, he passed the test because there was something inside Job that was just deeply content. One thing you might be able to even say is there was something alive inside Job that wasn't dependent because it hadn't built its roots into all of his prosperity, all of his wealth, and all of his success. So when those things were ripped away, he was still alive. But here we have an obedient guy, a good guy, we have a rich guy, a wealthy guy, and he's not alive, and he doesn't know why. Verse 17, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a good question. But Jesus doesn't go quite to the question of eternal life. And he doesn't quite get on what's also another interesting word we could unpack, which is the word inherit. You think about inheritances, it's easy for those who anticipate their inheritances to think that those inheritances are deserved to them because of the people that they're related to. They've just grown up with privilege, and so they assume that the death of those before them will lead to greater privilege. That's kind of the way inheritances often work. But somebody who'd inherit really hasn't done anything for it. They don't have to achieve some status in order to be given that inheritance. And yet, he kind of merges the two of these. I need to do something so that this eternal life I desire, that I haven't tapped into quite yet, is something I could inherit. And Jesus decides not to play exactly into what his question is. Instead, he 
reframes things. In fact, the one word he wants to focus on isn't life, it's not eternal, and it's not inherit, it's good. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. In fact, Jesus kind of reframes the whole question, not what do you have to do in order to live forever, but what do you need to have in order to live forever? And he's getting at the heart of it with this question of goodness. Because Jesus sets the table with this comparison. You're using this word good to describe me, and I just want to set a contrast. There's no living being who could ever use the word good the way that God could use the word good. It does bring up, Jesus brings up this one question. There's a book written by Jen Wilkin called None Like Him that I think is really helpful if this idea sort of, you know, gets you thinking a little bit more. And in, in her book, she, she has this quote. She says, no human being possesses anything God needs, nothing which, with which to coerce him or manipulate him. I don't want you to have that kind of leverage with God, and I'm certain you don't want me to either. We are kept safe from each other's divine blackmail by the, here's the, here's the category that she's describing, the self-sufficiency of God. What the self-sufficiency of God means is that in our relationship with him, we never contribute a single thing that bridges a gap over his deficiency, what he was lacking. And so it's not as though there's a lack of good in God, and so my goodness brings something to the table. Make sense? You can think of it sort of in a currency sort of way. There's nothing we could ever give or provide for God that would make God think, oh, good, man, that's the one card I needed in my hand. I'm so glad you provided that for me because I was deficient until you gave me your time, your treasure, your talents. I needed you to be okay. The self-sufficiency of God says that's a flat-out lie. So when David is going to make a temple for God, Seems like a good idea. And the prophet initially tells him, yeah, that's a great idea. Go for it. Until he has his devotions later that night and God comes to Nathan and says, that's, no, that's, that's not the way this is going to work. You tell him, I've never once needed a place to live and the tent's fine for me right now. It's okay. I'm all right. When Paul's talking later on <laughs> to a group of idol worshipers, and he's looking around and saying, boy, there's a lot of stuff that I see you're attributing to this version of God, but there's an unknown God that you don't seem to really know how to relate to. I want to tell you how to relate to him. The thing you need to know about him is he is self-sufficient. There's not been a moment in history where that God has ever needed anything from us, for he gives all things. He gives to all creatures life and breath and everything else. From the Old Testament patriarchs to Paul's work in the New Testament, the self-sufficiency of God reminds us of one thing. We never bring anything to the table that impresses God. Do you see why Jesus makes that point in the very beginning of this conversation? Because we have a very impressive man who's walked up to Jesus. You know what that addresses in us? All the ways that we are fighting to be impressive to God. I know that at times we can look and we can relate to when Paul says, among you, there were not many who were noble. There were not many who were wise. There were not many who were all that impressive. But the truth is, there are some of you guys who are pretty impressive. There are ways that you're becoming more impressive. There are ways that you're maturing. There are ways that you're doing more. And it's easy for us to sort of join this young man, run up to Jesus, fall, at our knee, fall on our knees before him and say, I want this kind of life that you offer. So what do you need from me? What, what can I do to sort of 
make a trade with you. We're coming and asking, God, what, what can I do? And the first lie that Jesus begins to address with this man is the one that everybody believes. My goodness can save me. Look at the way Jesus unpacks this lie in verse 19. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. What's he doing? He's just working with the Ten Commandments, right? Love God, love others. That's the very tip of the mountain, but really that snow-capped peak of the mountain of all of God's commandments that represents it well are the Ten Commandments. Now, in other places, Jesus will add to these, but he's not doing that here. Here, he's just letting the man run his resume. You just, you just go and let me know, man. Have you killed anyone? I'm doing good. Have you defrauded the marriage bed of another couple and have you violated yours? Have you committed adultery? Doing good. Have you stolen? No, in fact, I have a lot of money of my own. Have you been lying? Well, no. Have you been defrauding? Have you honored mom and dad? Oh, he says, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. What should be the next reply? God's been looking for people like you. It is so good we're having this conversation. I can represent as an ambassador of my father in heaven how thrilled he is. Draft day has arrived and you're his number one pick. a shame, isn't it? We all think that our practice, our effort, our ambition, our motivation for God, that sustained passion, the idea that God needs good from me so that I can secure good from him, that's the way life works, right? Because frankly, it is the way life works. Guess what's going to happen this year? If you do well in college, you will get good grades. Good from you means good from the teacher. That, that's the way it goes. Who gets promoted from work? Well, those who are related to the boss. Beside that, though, the people who are doing well. You do well at work, and generally speaking, you get more money. Earn more, you get a percentage of it. Do well, earn money and reputation for the company. There's probably a bonus coming, maybe a raise coming. This is just the way life works. It's the way we've indoctrinated ourselves to live from education, in through our profession, and on. Those with a good retirement are the ones who have earned and contributed well so that there's enough money in there. Get good from me, and I'm waiting for good for me. And when we bring that to God, we've forgotten Goodness exists on an entirely different plane with God. Why do you call me good? And wh why have you reduced doing good, or sorry, being good, down to the good that you do? We've, we've talked about that, right? You say to a little kid going over to their friend's house, hey, be good. What we mean by that is do good, right? Do good things while you're there. But the way we package it is that you will be good if you do good things. It's not really helpful because goodness only exists in one being in the entire universe. And Jesus said nobody's good but God alone. And yet we, because we feel more good than someone else, call ourselves good and other people bad. Hey, are you a good person? Are you going to heaven? Well, I'm not. I'm not a murderer. Or, if we just really wanted to make sure we're doing okay, I'm not Hitler. Are you going to go to heaven? Oh, good people go to heaven and all dogs go to heaven. So given the way that this works, all I understand is, I just need to be good. 
you know what you know what this is actually saying everybody's got a price i just need to know what god's is that's the way the rich snobby entitled people think right All I need to do if I've got enough of my own resources is figure out how many of them I have to give you so that I can get what I want. And then we've taken our sense of morality, our own goodness, we've laid it before God and said, I've got pockets full of good. God, what's your price? How much do you need so that I can get good from you? How much of my goodness do I have to sort of lay out for you? It's the way we think. Don't these people annoy you when you meet them in real life? People who think they can just kind of run roughshod over every relationship because they're entitled and they're rich and they're powerful. They can just kind of do what they want. These people bother me to no end. And I'm not Jesus because look at what Jesus does. Jesus, verse 21, looking at him, loved him. Darren looking at him, is annoyed by him and wants to run him down. Darren meeting up with him is kind of jealous of him inside, doesn't want to let that show, and so needs to find moral superiority over the sense of smugness that I detect in you. That's the way Darren operates, and Darren's not Jesus. Not that I had to inform you of that, but Jesus, looking at him, loved him. I wanted to go right to the next point gotta be honest here guys when i'm preaching this when i was looking at it when i was in my alliterative world you know like i just wanted to just run right into the next point how does jesus school this guy and take him out how does jesus cancel everything about this guy how does jesus just take him to town and then i read this by jc ryle the lord beheld with pity the strange mix strange mixture of earnestness and ignorance which the case before him presented He saw with compassion a soul struggling with all the weakness and infirmity entailed by the fall, the conscience ill at ease and sensible that it wanted relief, the understanding sunk in darkness and blinded as to the first principles of spiritual religion. Jesus sees all this, Darren sees all this, and he's smug over this. Jesus sees all this and beheld it with pity. Just as we look, Ryle continues, with sorrow at some noble ruin, roofless and shattered and unfit for man's use, yet showing many a mark of the skill with which it was designed and reared at first, so may we suppose that Jesus looked with tender concern at this man's soul. Darren forgot. But we must never forget that Jesus feels love and compassion for the souls of the ungodly. You know what that means? That means that Jesus didn't get into the Twitter vibe. Jesus didn't give into the comment feed. Jesus didn't get give into the way that dialogue works today. And in verse 21 say, you lack one thing, moron! Go sell all you have. Give it to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. Ha! You guys see what I did? Yes, yes, yes. That's right. Took him down, boy. That's not what Jesus did. That's not the way this sounds. Yeah, sorry. That was probably, you know, a decade removed from whatever you'd say today. I was just trying to be rude, and I'm not great at it. It's just kind of exudes so naturally from me. It's just hard for me to find that kind of see how easy it is for me to be smug i think jesus looks at him and because he loves him he says you let you lack one thing it's the thing it's one simple thing just go get up go so all you have give it to the poor And in doing so, you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Rid of all that other stuff. Then come, follow me. A rebuke, sure. But kind of the like 
man, we've got a long way to go. You're not going to need all that in your suit case. Nothing really heavy for you to carry in your backpack. Just, just get rid of it and then come, let's go. Let's go. You know, it's so easy. It's just so easy to see other people's flaws. Just like you think you're pretty good at hiding them, and <laughs> you're really not. The world isn't that great at hiding their flaws, and it doesn't take the most discernment ever to be able to pick holes in people's conversations. You feel it. You feel when somebody's talking with a heart from Job, and you feel it when somebody's talking like a heart that this young man has. And it's so easy to want to just point at that one thing, that one little spot, and just put your finger on it like you're rubbing their back and you found something, you just dig in and go, there it is, there's the knot, there's the problem, and just get them down on their knees. This guy's already down on his knees. And Jesus is saying, yeah, yeah, this, but come on, come on, up we go, let's be rid of it, and let's move on. You know what I'd love to say is that because Jesus did this, because he loved him and because he spoke that way, the man responded with joy. But he doesn't. Jesus failed. Because his job was to make this man a disciple. His job was to turn him to the kingdom. His job was to make him repent. And Jesus failed. No, he didn't. But isn't that freeing? Let's read verse 22. Jesus, having delivered the truth in a loving way, the truth he needed, the accurate truth, the one missing piece of what it would take for him to stop following the world and instead follow Jesus, Jesus delivered that to them as he should have, and it didn't work. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus was saying to him, look, being good is so much deeper than doing good things. It's what your heart's attached to. It's what your heart's following and running after. If we can engage our kids with love rather than ridicule and rebuke, we can engage our enemies with love rather than rebuke, we can have compassion you know why? Not because it's resident in you, but because if you have to have an honest dialogue about how you came to Christ, this was the same attitude Jesus used when he won you. He didn't demand that you gave up everything you were doing that was stupid. He didn't demand immediate change. He met you where you were, helped you to see what you were following, and he freed you from it. But without his touch, we would have followed this guy right along with him in verse 22. We would have run after our own sense of goodness, and we would have believed that lie that my innate sense of worth and dignity is what saves me. It's not. It's not at all. The second lie, though, that takes place in this conversation is the one that Jesus then begins to unpack. In verse 23, after this man leaves, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 24, he then says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Twice, he doesn't want to talk about the free gift of grace. Twice, he doesn't want to talk about the ease by which people can come into the kingdom. Instead, what he wants to talk about is the difficulty he says in verse 23, it will be difficult for the wealthy to enter. He says again in verse 24, 
It's easier for a camel to be contorted through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter. It is difficult to enter the kingdom of God. But in the beginning of verse 24, Jesus says, rich people, I want you to understand how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Successful people, I want you to know. He says children. The children that the disciples were just dismissing away from the conversation because they're not worthy of the blessing of God. The children that Jesus is dead, this is the only way to come, is as children who own nothing in this culture, who really have no power and no influence in this culture. This is the way I want you to come to me. We're thinking like children, right? Hey, little ones, don't try to get rich. Everybody is going to tell you for the rest of your life to mark yourself by your wealth. Don't, my little children, try to get rich. It's going to bring incredible difficulty on your persevering to the very end. That's Jesus' mindset. Now, I skipped a couple things there, didn't I? Verse 24, after Jesus says it's difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, Mark says the disciples were amazed at his words. Verse 24, verse 25, he gives this analogy of a camel, which may be literal. It may be a reference to a gate. There's some debate among scholars whether Jesus was talking about a gate or whether he was just actually trying to put it through something that would require an incredible amount of what we would consider to be an impossibility because a camel could get down on its knees and it happened to get through a gate. Well, that's, that's fine. But later on, Jesus is going to say this is impossible. In other words, what he says in verse 23, he is ratcheting up the degree of difficulty whenever we come to verses 24 and to 25. It's that much harder for rich people to get into heaven than for camels to go through needles. And they were exceedingly, Mark says, astonished. So the question is this. In verse 24, what amazes the disciples? And in verse 26, what is astonishing the disciples to an exceeding amount? It's this question. Who in this church is going to heaven? Tell me. Who are the people? It's possible, it's probable that you're thinking of the people who have got their lives together. The people who are doing well. The people who are successful. The powerful, the rich. The people that are doing well. That's the way life seemed to work in the first century. Now, have we been purged from that? Well, well, frankly, we try to sing about grace. We try to talk about grace. We try to posture ourselves to receive grace every day so that we can have a sense of being inoculated against this. But the way everybody's thinking in the first century, the disciples included, are that the rich people are rich because God blessed them, so they're going to the kingdom. The poor are the questioned ones. The people who are suffering are the ones who are in question. In other words, if you're in first place in this life, you are in first place in the life to come. If you are in last place in this life, you are in last place in the life to come. That's the way we analyze the world and we assume that God thinks of us the way the world has ranked us. Because it happens to you every day. It's just the current of this world that's moving you in that direction. And so when Jesus says the opposite in 23... And he says the opposite and ramps up the degree of difficulty in 24 and 25. It is amazing and astonishing that these things would be true. And if only Jesus only had to say this to his disciples, it became part of the DNA of the church, and they never had to think about it again. But that's not the way it happened in the, in, in the New Testament. So that Paul has to say to Timothy, Timothy, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Why? Because the love of money, money love, is a root of all kinds of evils. 
It's through this money love. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Jesus, Paul later, is saying what Jesus will sum up at another point. You love one. You serve one. God, money. You serve a good God or you try to impress God with your goodness. Not both. There is goodness love and there is money love and both as the objects of our pursuit in life and as the sense of what we think we've got in our pockets that can bring us to God is ultimately one lie, my goodness can save me. The second lie, my money can save me. It's why James says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he's promised to those who love him? James is another guy like Mark who sometimes doesn't mind confusing people because he says things so bluntly. He's, he's not the one who's going to come and do a little bit of dissection with a, sur- you know, with a scalpel and be precise with a surgery. He's kind of like, you know, this seems broken and ruined. Here's a, a mallet. Pow! That's the way Mark has been talking to us. Here, just pow, pow, pow. James is coming and saying, pow! And I'm like, James, Are you saying every poor person goes to heaven? Yeah, kind of. But more say I'm saying this, what Jesus said. Rich people are going to have a lot of trouble getting to heaven. Because it's the poor people who understand their need. The poor people come like these children, powerless and penniless before God, and saying, "I, I just need. I need. My pockets are empty, and so I need. My goodness can't save me. My money can't save me. Paul Tripp says, money is a cruel lover. It will take, take, take from you, but it will never give you what you had hoped it would give. You should be thankful for the money God entrusts into your care. You should celebrate when you're blessed with abundance, and you should steward your money well, but you should never give it the love of your heart. The fruit of this money love is always evil of some kind. It produces envy, greed, anger, discouragement, selfishness, and all the wrong choices and actions that these things produce. Love is the reason that money, designed by God to leave behind a legacy of good, sadly produces a harvest of evil. I was talking about this with, with Barb and Steve the other night because I had been talking with Paul Michaels, the, the friend that we have who's making his way through Nepal. And I was asking, what does it mean for us to do good to these poor believers in Nepal? And as Barb and Steve and the missions team and we on the eldership have, have thought about it, we're saying, we've got money. They need money. Let's help. These are men who could be supported in ministry so that they could go on. And Paul, our, our, our friend who's been in a lot of different spots, is saying, I love that impulse. And in some ways, I'm with that impulse. But I just want to warn you, Western money is poison. Western money has become poison because it looks like the blessing of God. And the one There are many things that the Western church should be ashamed of, but one of the main things we should be ashamed of is that we have exported prosperity theology into so many corners of the Christian globe that I think God is going to look and say, I have got a millstone prepared for your necks because those, my little ones, you have led them to sin and you have led them to this snare, and you have given them nothing of a desire for God. You've simply given them a desire to be rich. And I don't want to do that in Nepal. <laughs> we got to keep talking about how do we care for men who are guarding the gospel so that the gospel gets proclaimed and not money gets proclaimed. 
but I care less about what we're exporting and far more about what we are harboring in our own hearts, guys. Because in one sense, we're so impressed with our goodness, and in one sense, we're so committed to our wealth. And I'm grateful for the examples of generosity, and I am grateful, so grateful for the many times that God has woken us up I think of the times we've gone through Luke. I think of the parables. I think of just I think the many sermons that I've heard and just the bucket of cold water that God regularly seems to splash us with that says, hey, you're trying to get rich. Cut it out. It's not good. How can you be generous with the stuff that you've got? And our church has risen up. I mean, in the middle of COVID, when everybody's struggling, we, we asked, hey, there's a lot of people who are starving in Nepal. Can we help? Hey, the church will match what you give. I can't remember, you guys like raised $8,000 and the church was, or the elders were then like, we don't have $8,000 to match. <laughs> and then we're like, oh, we do because we have that rainy day fund and this sure seems like a rainy day. It's just not our rainy day, it's their rainy day. So yeah, of course, let's, let's just go and let's give. Those moments, uh, we've got a lot of those. I, I praise God for them, but that doesn't mean that we are now immune to the danger that Jesus is trying to warn us about. Let me tell you how significant this danger is because the disciples see it the right way. Verse 26, they were exceedingly astonished and they said to him, then who can be saved? And if we just pause there and we let that question sink in, they're talking to the Savior who has opened blind eyes. They're talking to the one who has created food out of nothing. They're talking to the one who has stilled storms right in front of them. They're talking to the one who has done nothing but impress them. And because he's trying to demolish their way of getting saved, they're saying, well, apparently salvation is unattainable. I mean, if the rich aren't going, then nobody's going, right? And Jesus said, yes, <laughs> yes, you've got it. The way you're thinking, this is absolutely unattainable. You can't impress God. Brothers and sisters, you don't believe me. Because I don't believe you. You totally want to impress God. You know how I know? Because the next time you're unimpressive, one of the thoughts that will plague you is that God doesn't love me anymore. When you stop succeeding, when other people are yelling at you, when other people are telling you all of your failures, and you can't sleep at night because you're so aware of some problem that's been plaguing you, the one thought that's right there, the lie of the enemy, is that God doesn't love you anymore. What a disappointment. And Jesus is okay with that entire house of cards crumbling. You think you can attain your salvation? Fantastic. How's that going for you? It's impossible, isn't it? But not with God. For all things are possible with God. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back because to me, the only way for us to be able to close a message like this is to take communion together, isn't it? We have to repent of the idea that our blood, our sweat, and our tears are what earn favor from God. And the only way we can get rid of that is either to say that God doesn't give us his favor or that it comes some other way. And guys, every time we take communion together, that's the statement we're making. That the love and the favor and the grace of God came not through my blood and my sweat and my tears, but his. He's the one who pled, is there any other way in the garden when he's 
he was sweating and his blood mingled with his sweat. When his tears were rolling down because he knew what was coming right before him, that he was going to have to absorb all of God's disappointment, all of God's wrath on himself so that you and I wouldn't have to bear the weight of that ever again. He had prepped his disciples before that. He said, this meal before you, which you've been celebrating for years, it's been about me all along. And church, what we do when we take the bread is we say it's the effort of the Son of God on our behalf that lets us put down all of our efforts, repent of our sense of goodness, our sense of impressiveness, and we look before God and we say, it's you and it's you alone, it's not me. It's the body of Jesus that was broken for you. So let's take and let's eat together. Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup that we've been drinking forever, it represents something now. It represents a covenant of my blood. It represents a deal where my blood will be the guarantee for you for the rest of your days. So let's take the cup together. of God, you who have shared in this meal together, you have just made a statement. You've made a statement that just like the Israelites were freed because of the salvation that God provided through the blood of a lamb, you, those who had been enslaved to your sins and to the sense of your own goodness and to your desire to impress God, you are now free of that burden from here on forward. You've reminded yourself of that through this meal. You have reminded yourself that you're no longer slaves to your goodness and you've reminded yourself that you're no longer slaves to your own influence. And so Titus 3 says to us, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And yet you've still got your money. And it's still going to whisper its lies to you, but you're free of those lies. And so Paul, through Timothy, could say, as for the rich in this present age then, what do we do? If we're not going to impress God with our money, if we're not going to buy things from God with our money, what do we do then with our money? He says, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Because the application for this is not go rush out and figure out what program you can support from Esperanza Diana that we heard of last week. But it, it might be. It is, though, I think, primarily for, ask, for us to ask a question. And here was the first version of my question. Will we choose sides with the satisfying Savior, or who gave himself to save us, or with the treacherous treasures which impede that salvation? It was alliterated. Here's the better one. Do you really believe that your earthly treasures make it harder or easier to finish this long race to the very end? 
Next question is, do you think that your money, your treasure, your influence, your earning power, your savings account, do you think that what happens with the stock market and how valuable you are as a result, do you think that the kind of career you're going into or the kind of career that you're stuck in, do you think that those things are ultimately the one thing that will make your life better? Or are we willing to buy into what Jesus is saying that hoarding up earthly treasures makes it harder for us to finish this long race to the very end? Because three of, you guys, three of your groups are meeting this week. This wouldn't be a bad question to have to ask of each other. Do I think that it's easier because I have more or do I think that it's harder because I have more? What would it look like for me to repent? So let's pause for a moment. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you, through Jesus, demonstrated exactly what it looks like both to be wealthy and to empty yourself so that others can truly find that which is wealth and that which leads to life. But Lord, we're stuck in this world. It is hard for us, yet not impossible for us. So Father, we are in this present age and we are rich, some richer than others, but we are all rich. So I pray that you would help us to think about what you've entrusted to us both what we possess and the earning power that we have in the future. And I pray that you would help us be very aware of the danger of trying to impress you and buy good from you. And instead, having received everything from you, Lord, may we be generous with what we have so that we can say with Job, the Lord's given Lord's taken away, and all we want at the end of the day is to bless his name. We ask this then in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's do that. Let's bless the name of the Lord together.